Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Ronald Goldfarb, the author of After Snowden. Ronald, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Be here. It's amazing that we made this date so long ago, and it couldn't be a discussion that could be more timely, as it turned out. As it turned out, that's exactly right. It's always a timely discussion. Um, the the boundary between the free press and security is is something that I think is on the on a lot of people's minds today. But it's been on your mind for a lot longer. So please tell our audience, uh, Ron, a little bit more about yourself. Uh, and how you came into this field? Well, I'm a lawyer and a writer and um, and and a literary agent, and so I put all those things together. When the uh, Snowden event happened a few years ago, it struck me that uh, most people were talking about the wrong question, whether or not Snowden was an angel or a devil. Um, but what was really interesting is how, in a digital age, things have changed so dramatically and what, in, in light of what Snowden disclosed, we ought to be thinking about such things as privacy, the Fourth Amendment in the 21st century, the questions of whistleblowers and leaks, and the role of congressional oversight and judicial reform, etc. And, you know, how, how do we strike the right balance between national security, which everybody who's sane and rational is in favor of, and constitutional liberty, which we feel the same way about, especially in this country. The lines aren't clear, um, and the values change from time to time. We're, we're in a period now, in, in light of what happened in Paris, where most people's feeling is, let's get these people. They don't play by the same rules. We need to do what we need to do. And, you know, who could not naturally feel that way, except if you look at history, and you look at, say, December 7, 1941, which is, if you're old enough, uh, a day, as uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, lives in infamy. Well, I think um, most people remember that day, but I'm certainly not <laughs> old enough. <laughs> yeah, I surely do. And, you know, the country came together. We decided we were attacked. We, there was a war on fascism. And we all pulled together. It was, uh, some writers have called the Great War as if there's such a thing as a Great War. Right, but there's two things to point out about the day that will live in infamy that we discovered after the fact or maybe became more relevant after the fact. Number one, that Adolf Hitler did not have to declare war on the United States after that day, yet he did anyhow. And we stand in a different uh, posture right now because we are allies with France and there's a treaty, the NATO treaty, that basically says if they invoke Article 5 of this treaty, we have to go to war to protect them because an attack on one is attack on all. Yeah. Well, I wasn't raising the question about whether we should have been involved in that war. We, of course, had to. Sure. My, my point is that uh, looking back with the benefit of history, no matter what it is, no matter how right it was that we did what we did, there are questions, for example, the question of the internment of Japanese-American citizens in this country. That's a great well, question, especially in light of political currents uh, where there are ma supposedly mainstream, I, I say supposedly mainstream because they haven't been nominated yet, but those seeking uh, a, 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 a big party nomination that want to reenact that. They actually cited uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower's uh, deportation program. 
Exactly. And the same thing with, uh, with 9-11 in 2001. Of course, when these awful things happened in New York City, everybody was repulsed and everybody had the attitude we need to do what we need to do to be sure this never happens again. But again, in light of, of the history, uh, and this is a shorter history because that was only 14 years ago, we're, we're now questioning such things as waterboarding, uh, extreme rendition, which is really kidnapping and torture, uh, and uh, in light of the disclosures by Edward Snowden, the, the questions of extreme surveillance. Did, did we need to go so far in doing what we did to accomplish what we all agree we needed to do? And that's, you know, that's the question we get to in our book. And um, Well, uh, uh, it's called After Snowden. But something that I think is relevant to the discussion in relation to Paris is that there's no boundary. Once the NSA crosses uh, the ocean, so to speak, once they leave the domestic surveillance arena, they can pretty much surveil anything. I mean, they don't have any legal restrictions in the United States stopping them from hoovering up information of foreign persons. Except what we've learned post-Snowden is that American citizens have been swept up in that process, That's because right. there is no such thing as local anymore, the you know the, the, the international agreements we have with other countries are such that you know England says we're only going to do English people, and the United States says we're only going to do American people, but we have agreements with England, so we swap that information. So um, we have found since the Snowden episode that Americans have been surveilled, on, on, even though the, the law um, requires different standards for uh, American citizens, as you point out, and foreign citizens. So the question is, you know, and, and we're going to come back to it post-Paris. At the time of the Snowden disclosures, at the time of 9-11, uh, our security system said, we need to be sure this doesn't happen again. All of America supported that. And since we don't know what we don't know, we're going to create the biggest haystack possible to be sure we don't miss anything. Logically, that made sense. Critics of that posture said, we don't know what we do know <laughs> if we collect such a vast haystack that the needles get lost in it. Right, and that as, if we, we inundate ourselves then, with information. We, we had tips about 9-11 that were lost in the process. We had tips about the Boston massacre during the, the, the big run a few years ago. And so um, we have to strike some kind of a balance in which we don't hold back our security system, who we all rely on to keep tragedies to a minimum. You can't keep them from happening. Um, and, and, in, and in doing what we want them to do, they don't do it in an excessive way. Well, there was a program called Total Information Awareness, TIA, and it was renamed the Terrorism Information Awareness Program. Is that, uh, you know, that that program was formally suspended, but that was that was the mining program. That was the, you know, build the biggest stack possible. Did it did it work? I mean, we stopped. There hasn't been an attack, uh, uh, you know, a foreign uh, attack on the United States since then. And it's been three years. Yeah, well, but I mean, that's proving a negative. Yes. And if you could attribute that absence of terrorism to those programs, then you could say there was a, a connection. But 
when called upon to justify some of these programs in courts, uh, the National Security Agency has said we we're not able to point to a specific thing uh, in which we kept things from happening. And, in fact, we didn't keep from happening the Boston Marathon disaster when there was information that had been gathered but the left hand wasn't telling the right hand, or for some reason it didn't get to the right people. So, uh, you know, it's a fair question to say, you know, do we have the right system, and, and are, are we overdoing it? And, and furthermore, when you're operating in secrecy, as you must in some situations, um, is does the democratic system, which calls for, you know, a tripartite form of government, where you have checks and balances, do those checks and balances work? And, you know, and what we have discovered in the post-Snowden era is that congressional oversight hasn't worked, judicial oversight isn't working, and, and with regard to the press, this is a kind of interesting one, because the press, the three people to whom Snowden gave his information, all won awards. That's Laura right. Poitras won an Oscar for her documentary, Glenn and Greenwald, Greenwald and The Guardian and mm -hmm. um, the Barton Gellman at The Washington Post all won Pulitzer Prize. It's the highest, most esteemed. And yet Snowden, who was the source of those stories, has been indicted for espionage. Right. So, so the journalists are heroes, but the one who leaked is a villain. Well, they're, they're heroes, but they're heroes be, because they made public the information that he disclosed to them for the very reason that, that he, he disclosed it, one, right. There's one thing that your listeners need to keep in mind, because a number of people are surprised to hear it when I say it, and that is Snowden didn't dump all of this information in, uh, into the public arena, like, for example, Julian Assange did when he did his disclosures, where they just opened things up and made well, it public. The, the WikiLeaks disclosure, you're talking about WikiLeaks. journalists right. and said, don't publish anything that you think will endanger America. But I think that there are terrible things happening about privacy, and if you agree with me, you need to disclose those things. Those were his instructions, and that's all that has been published. Well, we're going to talk about that when we come back from the break, because this is a great conversation, especially in light of recent events, and there's plenty more to explore. So, Ronald, stick around, and we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Oh, welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Ron Goldfarb. He is the author of After Snowden. Ron, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Happy to be here. So let's talk about an election issue. Uh, it's a political issue. It's part of our our uh, balance between freedom of the press and security, which is the theme of what we're discussing tonight and your book, After Snowden. Um, and by the way, for our audience, you can meet Ron on Saturday, November 21st. He's going to be at the Miami Book Fair International at 4.30 p.m., and he will be in room 8301. You can find out a little more at miamibookfair.com. Um what is your opinion of the need for a federal journalist shield law? Um, that's a tricky one. Um, I, I'm in favor of the most freedom for the press. Um, the shield law has been up for uh, uh, legislation for about 20 or so years. Periodically, it keeps coming up. I think the balance that we have now short of the shield law probably works. Uh, it goes back to a case decided late in the 20th century, in which the court voted 5-4 that there is no such thing as a shield law, but that the government needs to prove in all situations before they uh, bring sanctions against the press that every other option has been tried by them and to strike some kind of balance to give the press the most freedom possible. I mean, I have no objection to a shield law, but I think that short of a shield law, which we may never get, um, we're, pro- we're probably close to it. Sadly, this past administration, the Obama administration, has been worse to the press, uh, as, e- as its admirers uh, have to disappointingly uh, concede, um, than prior administrations. And there's not a, a lot of indication looking at the uh, debates amongst the Republicans and the Democratic candidates that they're going to be much better. Well, that's that's why I asked about the shield law, because it's uh, something that we have on the state level here in Florida. Uh, not every state has one of these shield laws. Um, but no, Florida is good on a lot of things. They, they also were the leader on televising the Supreme Court, which is, I think, a very important thing in terms of educating America. Um, but uh, short of the question of the shield law, I'm not dodging it, I, and I certainly don't object to it. I think as a practical matter, we may not get there. Short of that, there is what, what ought to be the policy of our government uh, in going after the press. And I think that they were excessive in this past administration. And, you know, hopefully as things change, whichever way they change, uh, there will be a change in that policy. But there's not a lot of, not a lot of hope <laughs> Uh, looking at who the candidates are and hearing what they have to say about things. And as the pressures rise and, uh, after events to come back to Paris again, there is less of an indication to be open and, um, you know... and uh, You know, it is very funny you mention that, because as I pulled up Twitter to let my Twitter followers know that we're live on the radio discussing this, I saw a tweet from Jeb Bush that was posted one minute ago. He's a Republican candidate for president, and the tweet reads... Now is the time to boost our intelligence efforts. That includes restoring the NSA metadata program to keep us safe. This happened a minute ago. It's just like the debate. 
the other night. <laughs> We're well, getting our I'm, live I'm, reaction I'm from Twitter. I'm flattered to be on the opposite side of a debate with <laughs> Jeb Bush because um, I think, you know, he is, especially in the middle of a political campaign that isn't going anyplace, likely to, you know, appeal to the you know, knee-jerk, quick reactions when people feel threatened that I think is worrisome and makes for bad policy. Nobody is, is not in favor of national security. You know, only, you know any rational person is. Um, as Justice Robert Jackson said a long time ago in an off-quoted remark, the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. Man, you that, stole my line. <laughs> you stole my line. Said, it doesn't mean anything goes, and it doesn't mean that we should you know, do things that embarrass us like we did in, in other instances that we talked about earlier. So it's, it's, it's easy to say we need to do everything we need to do. Yes, amen to that. Of course we do. But you know what? If you have people who are outside of the civil contract in society, who are prepared to commit suicide to hurt innocent people, the sad thing is there's no way you can ever stop that. Uh, a, a madman can always go into a public place, commit suicide, and hurt other people. You know, should we do everything we can to keep it to a minimum? Of course, but you can't. You can't totally. There's no prophylactic for that. It, it, it's an act of insanity, and um, so the question is: Yes, we need to do what we need to do. But when all is said and done, when we look back on it, do we want to be proud of how we did it? Or ashamed of how we did it. Well, there's uh, two there's two types of attacks we're talking about here. Uh, the ones that we've experienced the most in the United States are, like you said, people with mental problems, uh, ready to die, looking to take others with them, uh, with access to weaponry, who shoot a lot of people. I mean, there's there's yeah, an average Jeff of Bush one and the people big who one a think month. Like him, they're not in favor of keeping those guns out of those hands. Right. And then the other incident and the issue that we're talking about, of course, on this program, uh, we're here with Ronald Goldfarb, the author of After Snowden, who will be uh, at the Miami Book Fair International this Saturday at 4.30 p.m. Uh, the other issue is these the, the terrorist attacks. There was another terrorist attack attempted in France that was thwarted. It was a man with an AK-47 on a, a train. I mean, it was thwarted by an unarmed U.S. Marine. Yeah, pe people people rose to the occasion, and they should be applauded. But uh, I mean, what does that say about our true capability to maintain security? Is it really worth it to go out and just hoover up all that data? Just do what Jeb says. Just find out what everybody is doing, and you know, deal with the consequences. Yeah, but that has that hasn't stopped anything. We've had we've had acts of terrorism in Oklahoma City by Americans in America. The point is that you can't totally stop an insane person willing to give up his life to do a horrible act. You need to do everything you can to keep it from happening, but you don't want to give up the democratic principles that make this country distinctive in the process. Now, that's a hard balance to strike, and there isn't a clear line of demarcation, but it is something to for us all, especially at times of stress like this, like the post-Paris incident, to keep these things in mind and to remember that there, there are ways to do what we need to do without doing things that we're ashamed of in retrospect. I, I wholeheartedly concur. 
Now, turning back to the political aspect of all this, one of the candidates on the Democratic side made an utterance that has since been found to be less than factual. Hillary Clinton said that she believed Edward Snowden would be covered by whistleblower protection. Totally but, wrong. Um, first of all, he's not covered by the, the 1989, I think it is, whistleblower law because he was a contractor in the, in the defense uh, uh, business. Secondly, there's a second, I think it's 1998, uh, whistleblower law that does apply, but which didn't cover him. And um, so, you know, there isn't an adequate whistleblower system in this country. And I think we, it's very important to us that we do have one. Uh, Snowden aside, there are other countries around the world who have, are part of a treaty that deals with whistleblowers in a much more enlightened way than we do. Really? And What's the name of the I treaty? I think it's important for us to encourage and not punish people who see things that are going on that are wrong and speak out about it without being crushed in the process. Again, this past administration, they, they've indicted more people for espionage than any president in, in the history of this country. Um, and, you know, what does that say to people who see something wrong and want to do something about it? Um, it you know, it totally turns them off. And, and there have been three or four instances before Snowden. Uh, Jim Risen mentions one case in his recent book. Um, and there are, you know, uh, public television did a series on two or three of those whistleblowers. We have treated them horribly. Um, and even in the case of Snowden, you know, every, the, the press has won its prizes. The European Union just last week um, passed a motion to protect him all over Europe from being extradited. The White House um, had a special committee appointed after his disclosures, and they recommended 46 um, um, improvements in our system. The courts that have reviewed the program he disclosed have found them illegal. Congress passed a law changing it. All of those things have happened and yet we're treating him like he's Tokyo Rose. Well, I mean, why is it that they're not looking to repatriate him? He's even said, I want to negotiate a settlement. I'll take a plea, and I'll admit guilt, right? Yeah, he's, he said? he's never said he should be awarded by it. He just said, I want a public trial. I want to make my case. And he's, you know, he's frightened about coming back and being treated like, say, Manning, who was, you know, got 30 years in prison and was kept naked in front of his cell with the lights on all the time. I mean, he, you know, he's worried about ending up in Guantanamo, um, you know, with, with some good reason. So um, my understanding is that this, this government is not interested in uh, working out a settlement with him. His attorneys are. And I think it would be in everybody's interest if he came back, pled guilty to misappropriating property. Technically, he did do that and was allowed to you know, put in the um, the facts that would warrant a reasonable um, uh, sentence for him and, and, you know, move on with things. There, there are things he could tell us that we ought to know and that the government could profit from. He's obviously a smart guy, and um, he knows about our system and ways to improve it. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that ought to happen. But do I think it's likely? No, because it's too easy to fly under the flag of national security and call him a spy. And, you know, um, all he's done so far that, I, that anybody has known is that he's embarrassed this country. Well, I mean, that is that is the point that, uh, you know, the embarrassment is what they're seeking to avoid. 
but isn't that embarrassment part of democracy that sometimes you're going to do yeah, the wrong thing and people is. are going to find out that's, and maybe it'll prevent somebody from doing the wrong thing again one would hope at the time of the pentagon papers if you remember that uh, the solicitor general of the united states argued to the supreme court that what ellsberg did endangered national security and the, the supreme court you know threw that case out and many years later uh, Griswold, who was the Solicitor General who made that case to the court, wrote an article in the Washington Post saying it re- he, re- he embarrassed this country, but it really wasn't, and he didn't endanger national security. Well, that's, that's a big dilemma. I was talking at the top of the show about finding a third way, and isn't finding a way for our government to come to terms with Edward Snowden and others like him part of that third way? Because... In our country, we say that we, you know, want the rule of law, but isn't the rule of law supposed to be about mercy, not just punishment? Uh, An enlightened system would be, yeah. I'm not so sure I have a third way, but I think that we could improve the two ways that we have, which is the need for national security. You know, the first words of the Constitution is that, you know, we need to... uh, provide domestic tranquility in this country, and of course we should. And our defense system and our security system needs to have our total support and commitment. That said, we also have a constitution that, you know, talks about other civil liberties and civil rights, and those, too, deserve our respect and enforcement. And, you know, the hard thing is to strike a balance between keeping those two functionally working for us without sacrificing either if it is possible. Well, the last time I read it, it actually says to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare. So yeah, Exactly. You know, and, and who's, who's not in favor of, of all of those things? Well, all of those, but it doesn't say to provide for the common defense first. <laughs> establish justice is the first thing that the const well to form a more perfect union and then establish justice that's mm-hmm. that's really the I, first shopping I, list item I, I in couldn't, the constitution could, couldn't agree with you more well i mean let's talk about uh something that's maybe not in the book but it's certainly a hot topic today in america which is the same thing for domestic law enforcement um i do a lot of writing for photography is not a crime.com which is a national journal that focuses on domestic law enforcement issues and they also have whistleblowers but there's no whistleblower protections or very limited whistleblower protections for police. Do you see that there's a link between the the world's perception of the United States and how our police treat citizens? Uh, you know, I mean, there's and our image because there's there's a couple of things going on. I mean, it's not just Snowden who's being persecuted, but you have police whistleblowers who are persecuted too, and police who are overstepping their constitutional boundaries. Is, do you see that as an important aspect of our, you know, our image in the world? Well, less, I mean, less so our image in the world than our assessment of ourselves. Um, I'm less worried about what people in Poland think of us than I am about what I think about the situation. So, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so, um, but I mean, don't, don't you think that somebody I, I get your in. Point. And I, you know, I believe that whistleblower laws need to be improved across the board, uh, not only in the national security area, which are the testiest 
um, possibly of all cases, but in all situations. And, 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 you know, there are groups working on reform of whistleblower laws, and I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, the consciousness has been raised about the need for better whistleblower laws. Um, um, and, you know, I'm not so sure that that's going to solve the problems that we're seeing recently in, in police um, arrests and abuses. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's necessary to keep it all in perspective uh, I think that the police, just like our national security agencies, for the most part, do what we need them to do, and we're glad that they're doing it, and they you know, deserve our praise for endangering their lives and not for a lot of money. Uh, on the other hand, some of the excesses that we've been reading about and the militarization of police departments, where, where they're getting all of these tanks and, and helicopters and you know, the special... The weapons uh, of war. We, yeah, weaponry. I mean, it's turning them into, you know, uh, I guess they would argue they're in war zones. And, but, the, you know, the answer is that, you know, um, I, I think it's questionable how, in fact, we they have been armed in some situations. And some of the excesses that have gone to, it's a very complicated subject but you know, well you mentioned if, at the top the of the show is would whistleblowers uh, yeah. make a big difference i'm not so sure because i think we've already identified what the problem is um but um, um you know how you get communities to deal differently with these problems um uh, is going to is going to take a lot of wisdom and a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of concentration and, uh, but I don't think it's so much uh, identifying the problems. I think we know what the problems are there. Well, well, what Snowden did was expose things that we really didn't know. That's true. Um, that is true. But you, you mentioned at the top of the show the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And, of course, that is the, the prohibition on general search and seizure. Um, well... You know, how is it that we as a country can have a national policy, which is a drug war? And you don't have to elaborate too long. We're going to take a break in a second here. But we have a drug war that has eroded the Fourth Amendment tremendously already. Uh, do you believe that that erosion of the Fourth Amendment right that we face is affecting our outlook on the Fourth Amendment rights of and, and our privacy rights in these national security eras? Because areas because most people encounter the fourth amendment with local law enforcement but as we've discussed it's a big issue nationally when you're talking about national security so do you think that that's coloring perspectives nothing is local anymore and the whole notion of privacy um, needs to be explored in the digital era where we make certain things public with the understanding naive or or not that we don't mean it to be Public in terms of being on television that, that evening, but but uh, but public in a, in a limited way, and so we have to we have to come to grips with the, the nature of the digital world, where you know an email is like a postcard, um, and when and it moves a little faster, people, <laughs> a lot ahead, faster than a postcard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so and how public is public? There are those people who say, well, we give our privacy away for frequent flyer miles because we use our credit cards, we drive across bridges, we work in apartments, uh, everything is filmed now. 
And to some extent, it's good because we wouldn't know some of the things we don't that we now know if people on the street didn't make records of it with their iPhones and whatnot. On the other hand, you know what is what is left is you know is does that mean there is no such thing as privacy? And you know, that's actually a great one of the question. Speakers on our panel, who's a law professor at the University of Florida, John Mills, is an expert on privacy, and that is one of the subjects he will be discussing on Saturday. All right, we're going to take a very short break. We've been speaking with Ronald Goldfarb, and you can find out more about him at ronaldgoldfarb.com or come out to the Miami Book Fair International this Saturday, November 21st. At 4.30 p.m., uh, Ronald will be conducting a panel in room 8301, and we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back with Ronald Goldfarb. He is the author of After Snowden and will be at the Miami Book Fair International this Saturday, November 21st at 4.30 p.m. You can see his panel at 4.30 in room 8301. That's Building 8, Third Floor. Ronald, thank you so much for staying with us for so long tonight. Enjoy talking with you. Yeah, well, you know, it's an incredibly uh, lively conversation about a very, very important topic. Um, you wrote after Snowden, and you got a, a very distinguished panel. So tell us a little bit about John Mills, because he's going to be at your panel. But he wrote, yeah, he's John, a writer John for the book, was, too. Uh, the head, uh, the head of one part of the Florida legislature for some years. He was the dean of the University of Florida Law School, and he's written a few books on privacy. So his chapter is on privacy in the digital age, and it deals with some of the questions you and I were just discussing, and he does a much better job of, uh, of discussing it than I can. It's, it's, it's really his baby. Hotting Carter will also be on the panel. He was a longtime editor of a newspaper in Mississippi, and he was Assistant Secretary of State during the Carter years. So he was at both ends of the table in issues of what you do and don't 
want to get into newspapers yeah, on one side trying to get it all published and on the other side trying to filter out things that in the national interest shouldn't be there. Um, we also had uh, the dean of the journalism school at Berkeley, uh, Ed Wasserman, who writes frequently in the Miami Herald. Um, well, he's a nationally uh, syndicated he's an opinion columnist. Whistleblowers and whistleblower laws. Uh, he's done a chapter. Um, and the head of the National um, Archives, uh, uh, Tom Blanton, is uh, an expert on classification of documents. Uh, he's one, he did one of the chapters. And then a Pulitzer Prize winner from uh, a journalism uh, professor from California, uh, Barry Siegel, has done a chapter on state secrets and what the court should and shouldn't be doing in terms of overseeing what the government does. So, And all of these essays can be found in After Snowden. They're all chapters in the book, right. Right. Um, what, what should we finish with? Because a lot of people are asking the question, as we've discussed tonight, um, how far should we go? There's been another major attack. Um, it's certainly top of mind information. Um, what is the appropriate next step for our intelligence agencies? Or is there anything different we really need to be doing? I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the, you know, the needle is just going to leave the haystack. No magic wand. I think the best thing we can do is what you're doing on your program, which is public information, discussing it in an open way, um, uh, dealing with different points of view and trying to come to some uh, re rational balance between how many liberties need to be sacrificed in our anti-terrorism efforts, which we are all in favor of, and what kind of democratic controls over private information are appropriate, even in times of stress. That's the $64 million question. And again, there's not a clear line in the sand there, but it is something that has to constantly be on our minds as we go forward. And the only thing that I can think of that is a clear answer is to keep, you know, keep the lines open and keep discussing it and bring people with different points of view together uh, and discuss how we can. In other words, my position is national security and constitutional liberty are not either-or propositions. We want them both. Well, Ronald, I really appreciate you calling into the show tonight and sticking with us for so long. It's been a lively discussion, and I can't wait to put the podcast out and let everybody hear it because it's certainly top-of-mind information. And if you're out there in our audience and you want to meet Ronald in person, your opportunity is this Saturday at 4.30 p.m. at the Miami Book Fair International. He'll be hosting a panel. Uh, it's in room 8301 at 4.30 p.m., Ronald, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. Good night. Thank you. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.